It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we are at. And last time we began to get into the, the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. And again, we're kind of laying a foundation or a platform uh, for this idea of what have we drifted from, that we have such a tendency in our culture to shift from the reality of Christ and our love for him. Uh, what is the calling? What is the standard of which he has called us to? And uh, so what I'd like to do is just start with reading uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, just so it's fresh in front of us. So this is, this is what Moses writes. He says, Hear, or Shema, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Uh, we talked about this in the, the last episode, but it's interesting that the Shema that Moses gives to those who are about to enter into the promised land, uh, it was a reminder to say you are to keep the Lord your God in front of you all the time. That with your eyes and with your actions and just with the, with the throbbing of your heart, He is to be your God. And again, the reason we even call it the Shema is because the very first word in the statement is the word Shema. It means hear or to listen. And it's not just to listen in the sense of, oh, I heard a sound out there somewhere. It's not just a, a listen in the sense of like, oh, I, I, I've heard that before. It's the idea of coming under the authority of, responding to, acting in accordance with, obeying, all that is associated with that idea of the Shema. And again, this became so central to the very heart of Israel uh, that they just began to pray this all the time. Uh, in fact, this was the morning and the evening prayer. This is what they would start with when they would start church or the synagogue stuff. And so this became a uh, centerpiece of the life uh, of Israel. In fact, even to this day, this is a centerpiece for the life of a Jew. And this is what even one scholar said about modern uh, Orthodox Jews. He says, this is so important uh, so important is this confession that Jewish boys in Orthodox homes are required to memorize it as soon as they can speak. In other words, this is essential. This is really, really important. Uh, last time we looked at the word Shema, I was kind of fleshing that out a little bit. And what I'd like to do this morning is look at the very next phrase in verse 4, which is, The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Uh, it's a rather complex statement, and uh, don't get lost, uh, but I decided that I'm going to give you a little heady description of what's going on. Uh, Hebrew, in, in some aspects, is a little difficult to wrestle through, just like any language that you aren't born into. And so there's a few different ways you can understand this statement. In fact, there's three primary ways that scholars will tend to interpret or translate this phrase, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so what I decided to do is to give you the simplest answer possible, but it's still one degree complex. So Bible nerds are going to get excited. Non-Bible nerds, just endure with us, okay? Everyone okay? I know it's early, but you're just going to have to think a little bit. Uh, the easiest or simplest explanation I found, it actually comes from Tim Mackey, who uh, launched the Bible Project and uh, has some great resources. But he has a description of the wrestling of this particular phrase, and I think it's a great 
way to understand it. So I just want to read you a kind of a longer quote of him trying to describe the difficulty with this statement uh, and then try to come to some semi-conclusions. So uh, this, this, is, this is what he says. There is no present tense verb equivalent to the English verb is in ancient Hebrew, which already causes us a problem. So in other words, they don't have the word is. It's, it's a presumed word. So there is a word for was and will be, but is doesn't exist. Rather, two words are put next to each other, and the word is is inferred. For example, in English, we would say the car is red, but in ancient Hebrew, we would just say the car red, which if you've ever taken foreign languages, there's a similar construction in some translation or other languages. So Mackie goes on and says, ancient Israelites obviously had a concept of the verb is, they just didn't use a word to express it in their language. Instead, they used this grammar tool of simply placing two words together, which in Hebrew grammar, Hebrew grammar nerds call these nominal clauses. That excites probably nobody in this room. But <laughs> he goes on and says, the problem in translating and interpreting the Shema arises from the fact that it's made of two back-to-back -back sentences that lack the word is. Uh-oh. In Hebrew, the prayer consists of four nouns in a row. So in Hebrew, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Chad. Or in English, the Lord our God, the Lord one. As you can see, we've got four words, and depending on where you place the word is, you end up with different sentences. So here are your three options. Number one, the Lord our God is one Lord. Number two, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one or number three, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I guess you're like, I don't, I don't understand the difference. <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry about it. This is his conclusion. He says, at the end of the day, the meaning between these options isn't drastically different, which is why they look very similar. But each one has a different emphasis. Is the point that the Lord God is one and not many? In other words, He's, he's one individual. He's not many gods, which is what number one and number three suggest. Or is the emphasis on the fact that only the Lord is our God? Does the Shema claim that Israel's God is one being, or is it highlighting that the Lord alone is Israel's God and not any other? It's a great question. I'm in a somewhat complex one. And it's interesting that if you read the scholarship out there today, you, you have tension because some scholars will say, well, no, the emphasis is the fact that what God is really emphasizing is the fact that he is one. And some say, no, 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 the emphasis is the fact that he is God alone, that there is no other God. And you can say, well, there's still not much difference in my mind. I know, but there is nuance. So whether this excites you or not, just, just hang tight. I think at some level, it actually is suggesting both. I do think there is an emphasis on one more than the other, but I do think there's, I think you can come to the both conclusions, and I think, I think it'd be okay. Here's maybe a, a better way for us to say this. I, again, I think sometimes because we've often translated the name of God, right, Yahweh oftentimes, or Jehovah, or uh, th those that that four letters of God's name that is unpronounceable technically, Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah. 
Um, I think because we've often translated in English as all caps LORD, usually, we, we tend to miss some of the profundity of Scripture because we hear the word LORD and we've heard it so oftentimes we just kind of gloss over it and just nod along and be like, yes, amen, praise the Lord. Great verse. Uh, there's a new translation that's kind of based on the New American Standard that I've really, really appreciated and just really come to love, and it's the Legacy Standard Bible. And they've gone back through, and whenever it is the name of God, instead of just putting all caps LORD, which is a good tradition, and I, I think there's nothing wrong with that, but they have decided that they are going to go back and put the name Yahweh. Now, you can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's been beautiful reading through the Old Testament because there's all these passages that, we, you know, the Lord is one, the Lord our God, and you're like, yes. But when you actually read it as a Hebrew would understand it, now they would, they would not use that word, Yahweh or Yahweh or Jehovah. They, would, they, they use the word Adonai as the replacement word. But when you actually hear it with the word Yahweh, it actually, I don't know, it just has been stirring my soul. And I want to read you the Legacy Standards translation of this verse. Because even in so doing, <clears throat> I think it starts giving clarity to what God is saying. So this is how they translate it. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Isn't that kind of neat? It just sounds different. It stirs you differently because we're not used to using that kind of phraseology. We're used to saying, Lord. So I've been, I've been finding great benefit of this. Here's part of the wrestling match. And this is why I would say that the, the, the passage kind of has both concepts. When you look at the term, Yahweh is our God, it's actually Yahweh is our Elohim. And this is where it gets, hang tight, I know some of you are not nerds, and that's okay. Here's where it gets a little intriguing or confusing because the word Elohim is plural. So in Hebrew, whenever you put the I-M at the end, it makes something plural. So in English, we, we add an S typically, right? So, you know, you have uh, a cat, and we have more than one of those creatures, and so we add an S, right? We should just remove the S's on those ones, but... Uh, dog. We have dog. That, this is a better example. There's a dog, and we want more of them, so we add an S, and now we have dogs. But in Hebrew, you add an M at the end, I-M. For, for example, uh, there are things called seraph. There's a seraph. Remember this angelic creature? But if there's more than one of these, they are the seraphim. There's a thing called a cherub, and if you have more than them, they're not cherubs. It's the cherubim, which it's, it's the plural of that. God, his name is El. That, that's like the generic term culturally for the name God, El, E-L. And so if you have a bunch of this, El, together, then you have Elohim, which gets awkward. Because we know that God is Yahweh. He reveals his name as Yahweh. And yet, in the early part and all throughout the Old Testament, we, we are told that his name is Elohim, which is a little awkward because we only have one God, correct. But that word is plural, correct. Ha, 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 ha. Are you seeing a potential dilemma? 
And it's partly because of, and this isn't the only passage that does this, by the way. And of course, Christians look back and go, well, this makes total sense when you see the light of the Trinity. That there is a plurality, but there's a singularity. In other words, God is three persons, but he is one. And we will fight for that. We do not serve multiple gods. There are not multiple gods. There is one God. There is only one God. Someone not along, say amen, do something. Okay? <clears throat> so we only have one God, and yet our God is three. And so we would look and go, well, yeah, though that makes this, this passage makes sense. You know, you get into the Genesis stuff, and Elohim says, let us make man in our image. And we're like, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense from a, from a Trinity perspective. Now, it is interesting to me that when the scholars, the 70 Jewish rabbis, the scholars a few hundred years before Jesus was translating the Hebrew into Greek, the word they chose for Elohim is actually the word kurios in Greek, which means Lord, and it's singular. And I actually think that's brilliant because the whole Hebrew construct is that though God reveals his name as Elohim, which is plural, our God is one. And if you understand the Greek culture, Greek culture is so wrapped up in the pantheon of gods that the rabbis, when they were translated into Greek, said if we make Lord plural, that is going to be totally misunderstood in a Greek culture. So we have to keep him singular because he is one. Everyone confused? <laughs> okay. Praise the Lord. All the Bible nerds are like, this is cool. And everyone else is like, mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Just go on. <clears throat> So all that to be said is I do think this passage bespeaks of the triune God at a level. That he is one. That Yahweh is our Elohim. That he is singular. That we do not worship three gods. We worship one God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, who became man, Jesus. It is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He is one. Yes, he's three, but he's one. I'll fight you on this one. I know that's not intimidating, but I will fight you. Okay? So I do think the passage bespeaks that. In fact, one scholar said it this way. He said, the statement, the Lord is one, certainly does not contradict the truth of the Trinity. In fact, it establishes that truth. The Hebrew word for one is echad, which bespeaks most literally of a compound unity instead of using the Hebrew word, which speaks of an absolute unity or singularity. In other words, it's interesting that even this Hebrew word for one has this idea of one in terms of a unity idea. Uh, for example, in Genesis 2.24, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. That's that word. And you're like, well, they're two, but they're one. Yeah, I know, but they're two, but they're one. I know, that's the word. So again, I, I think the, the Shema passage gives a hint or bespeaks of the Trinity. Now, there's a whole bunch of passages. This is not our only tri uh, Trinity passage, okay? But though it hints at the idea of Trinity, I really think the emphasis of what's going on in the passage in the context of Deuteronomy is that, the, is that what the Shema is suggesting is that Yahweh alone is our God. That it's talking about the fact that, yes, he is one. However, the emphasis is he alone is our God. 
he is the one and only God. That he's not in a pantheon of gods, that we have one God, and yet he might be multiple persons in the Trinity language, but he alone is our God. So if I could perhaps translate in the NRJ translation, which is not a legitimate good translation, okay, but this is just my phraseology to kind of throw this all in one statement. But this is what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema here, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And that actually makes sense in the book of Deuteronomy because all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding the people, you are about to go into a land that is full of a multitude of gods, these idols, and do not serve them. Do not worship them. We have an exclusive relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So do not be wooed and wowed by this cultural pantheon of gods that you're going to encounter. We, O Israel, have one God, and he alone is our God. Is that making sense? Obviously not. Let me give you some passages. Uh, Jesus even hints at this when he's talking to one of the scholars. The scholar says, you know, hey, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you know, he quotes the Shema. And then the scholar re-quotes it back. And here was the scholar's interpretation of the Shema. He says, the scribe, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And so it seems like there's a Jewish tradition, even in the time of Jesus, that the concept of what the Shema is saying is that God alone is our God, which I think is really significant. You get into passages like Psalm 96, and this is what it says, For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Yeah, you know all those things out there that people are bowing down to? They are not true God. They are not the God of, that, that created all things. It is just a mere idol. But he, our God alone, Yahweh alone, made the heavens. That he's not in a collection of gods. He is God himself. And he is alone. Uh, one scholar talking about ancient Near East scholars said that they suggest reading this as Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, or perhaps Yahweh our God is the unique, meaning that he is unlike any of the other pagan deities that the Canaanites or the Parasites or the other ites and mites and tites were worshiping in the land of Canaan. <clears throat> that God was distinct. Yahweh was unique. He's unlike any other God. He alone is the true God. And you cannot add any others with him. Deuteronomy 4, a little bit earlier than our passage, this is what Moses says. He says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, there is no other beside him. This is how the legacy translates it. To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is God, and there is no other besides him. A few verses later it says, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. So when you look at the context of Deuteronomy, it seems like what Moses is suggesting in the Shema, yes, there's some triune language in it, but it seems like what Moses is suggesting is saying, look, you're entering into a land with a whole bunch of gods. But listen, O Israel, Yahweh, he is our God. And he alone is to be your God. Do not dabble with a whole bunch of affections and loves of other gods. Because you have one God and you are to serve him 
only. In other words, it's bespeaking of an exclusive relationship. Zechariah 14.9 says this, And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one, and His name is one. So Yahweh is the one and only God. He is not one among many. He is it. And I've been hinting at this, but it bespeaks of an exclusive relationship. That God's people have an exclusive relationship with their God. Because they only have one God, they must fully set themselves apart to give themselves to worship, to love, and to serve one God. Not a whole bunch of gods. One God. So he is not an option in a buffet line. You know what? I'll take a little bit of that one. I'll take a little bit of that one. And yeah, just sprinkle a little bit of Yahweh on. See, that, that is not... That's not the God of Israel. God says, I alone am your God, and you can serve no one else. In other words, if you're going to serve Yahweh, it excludes every other God. If Yahweh alone is God, then Baal also cannot be God. If Yahweh alone is God, then Ashtoreth cannot be a part of your worship. Now, in our culture, we, we don't have Ashtoreth poles. We don't have, you know, temples to to Baal or Baal. But we have a whole lot of affections in our world. And we do have a whole bunch of gods. We just, we just don't call them that. We don't go down and worship at a temple, but we do sit in front of a television set for hours and hours and hours on end binge watching Netflix. I, there's nothing wrong with the television, but you realize it's the affection that we give to it. But we have no problem uh, we, don't, we don't go down to some temple and, and do incense at some altar, but we'll go to a sports field, paint ourselves up, and worship the game in screaming and yelling and the affections and the emotions. And See, we, we may not serve at some altar, but we will serve at the altar of our jobs for success and for fame and for money and popularity and whatever. And so though we don't have the same type of gods that this culture did, you realize that we have the exact same issue that they did. And God says, I alone am to be your God, and you are not to worship and serve anything else other than me. That there is to be an exclusive relationship. Do you realize that in marriage, the moment you don't make marriage an exclusive relationship, that relationship falls apart? The moment, you're, the moment you say, you know what, it's, it, it's okay, uh, oh dear, for you to have affections and interactions with a whole bunch of other people, you realize that relationship does not work. And that's also true spiritually. I, I want to finish the quote from Tim Mackey, part of the article that he wrote. He continues, and this is his conclusion in terms of this whole polytheistic culture. Polytheistic just means this idea of it's, it's the worship of multitudes a multitude of gods. But he says this. He says, all of this will make perfect sense as you read further in Deuteronomy. The Israelites have been steeped in polytheistic cultures for generations. From their roots in Canaan, to their long years in Egypt, to their traveling through Canaanite territory in the wilderness, they have been surrounded by people worshiping many different gods. Moses clearly believes that loyalty, obedience, and love to their one true God is the only way to life. One of the greatest threats, get this, one of the greatest threats to Israel's future was dividing their allegiance between many gods. 
And so the Shema is a daily reminder that the Lord our God alone is our God. Isn't it interesting that this is the thing that they would quote every single day when they would get up and they would go to bed at night? That it was a constant reminder that they were keeping always before them that God alone is the one that I serve. God alone is to be the focus. God alone is the one that I, I worship. God alone, God alone, God alone. Because you know how easy it is for our souls to drift? And it's like we need a daily reminder to say, will you keep your affections where they're supposed to be on God alone, who is your God? It's interesting, in an exclusive relationship, exclusive relationships provide security. I find that really fascinating. That, that when you are fully committed to someone, when, you're, when you fully say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to serve, I'm not going to pursue, I'm not going to go after, I'm not going to have an affection for anyone else, it actually gives that relationship security. This is what one of the scholars said about this idea. He says, <clears throat> the Shema means that the Lord, Yahweh, is totally unique. He alone is God. The Israelites could therefore, get this, have a sense of security that was totally impossible for their polytheistic neighbors. The quote-unquote gods of the ancient Near East rarely were thought of acting in harmony. Each god was unpredictable and morally capricious, meaning that they would always trick and scheme and manipulate. Each god was, un oh, I just read that. Each god was more unpredictable and morally capricious. So a pagan worshiper could never be sure that his loyalty to one god would serve to protect him from the capricious wrath of another. So if you live in a culture that worships a whole bunch of gods, well, then if I serve this one God, is he going to protect me from that God over there? And about what about that God over there? And what about that God over there? And, and yet God says, I alone am God. There is no other God but me. So when you serve me and when you go after me, you can trust me. You can, I will protect you. You don't have to worry about if, if some other God is going to scheme against you. Because I alone am God and there is no other so it provides a sense of security. Not only does it give security, but you realize it actually allows you to trust. That when you have an exclusive relationship, it actually allows you to begin to know. And as you get to know, it showcases the fact that our God is faithful. And when you understand that God is faithful, you can trust him. So this exclusive relationship with our God actually provides great security, it provides great trust, and therefore it provides great peace and rest. In marriage, if you have an exclusive relationship, you realize there's a tremendous peace that that provides in your marriage. That you don't have to worry that your spouse is going to go off and commit an affair with some random person down the road. That if they go out to do shopping, you don't have to go, I wonder where they're actually going that if you actually have an exclusive relationship and you have the security and the trust in that relationship, it actually just gives you great peace and it gives you great rest. What do we need to have that with God? That in the midst of having an exclusive relationship with him because he alone is your God, that you actually have security in your life and you, have, you can actually trust him and it actually provides peace and rest for your life because you know that he's not, he's not capricious. He's not just going to randomly do things outside of his nature and his character. You have one God, and he alone is your God. Do you know how significant this is all throughout Scripture? 
This is just, this concept is repeated over and over and over that you are to worship and serve God alone. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is the section right before our Shema, Moses is recounting the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting to me that the first three of the Ten Commandments has to deal with the exclusivity of relationship with our God. Listen to what Moses writes as he recounts the Ten Commandments. He says in Deuteronomy 5, Yahweh spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. I was standing between Yahweh and you at that time to declare to you the word of Yahweh, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You should not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generations of those who, <clears throat> who, those who hate me, but showing loving kindness, hesed, to generations, to thousands, to those who love me and to keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Isn't it interesting that those first three commandments is all about a focus and exclusivity of relationship, that, that I am to serve and worship him alone, that, that I should not make any idols, I should not have anything in place of God, that, that I should take his name and, and reverence it. And it's not just a name. You realize this, it's speaking of character and life and attributes. In other words, I am to be exclusive and focused in my relationship with my God. Listen to what Isaiah 45, 5 says. God says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Is that true in your life? I'm not asking if there's a Buddha statue at your house. What I'm asking is that when you look at the affections and the depth of your soul, is Yahweh your God truly the one and only God in your life? Not what do you declare with your lips, but when you look at how you expend your life and what you spend your money on and what you think about and, and the things that just interest you and the things that pull on your heart, is it true that God alone is your God? Or are you wrapped up with everything of this culture and all the distractions of this world? It's interesting, in the New Testament, Paul says this in Colossians 1.18. Speaking of Jesus, he says that Jesus is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that, get this, that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Uh, the ESV translates this, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent meaning first place. Is Jesus, Yahweh, your God, truly in a, first place position in your life? Does he truly have first place in your priorities, in your focus, in your words, in your free time? Or are you divided? And though you may give him lip service, in truth, your whole life is all scattered. Perhaps if I can ask it a different way, is Jesus your number one focus? Is he your true delight? Is he your main drive and your consuming passion? Is he the beat of your heart and the light of your life and the thought in your mind and the word upon your lips? 
Is he the apple of your eye and the center of your life? Is he your North Star and your supreme focus? Is he truly preeminent first place in all things? In other words, does he have first place in your daily activities, your thoughts, your emotions, your relationships, your definition of success, your future, your goals, your words? Is he truly first in your life? And again, it's so easy, I think, for us in the modern culture, in the modern church, to give him lip service and say, yes, I'm a Christian. Whoa, I'm a, I love Jesus a lot. But when you actually look at our lives, it seems like he is not God alone. Could I remind us, there is one God, and he alone is worthy of our worship. And I think for a lot of us, we have these affections and have these desires of our heart that are, have pulled us, that have caused our soul to drift from the one in whom we actually do desire to love. And if that's true, could I encourage all of us to freshly repent? Listen to what Joel 2 says. Joel says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, in hesed and relenting of evil. If you find yourself that your soul has, has drifted, if you have found that that yes, I have given God the lip service that yes, you are my God and I will worship you forever, amen. And yet your whole life demonstrates the fact that he is actually not God alone. Can I encourage you to do what Joel says and repent and return, knowing that your God is so good, that he is slow to anger, he is so kind and compassionate and he is full of this hesed, loving kindness. He always will forgive if we repent. And again, we have such a propensity to drift. But as the Shema says, there is one God, and he is to be your God alone. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, uh, maybe this is not for anybody else in this room but me. But wow, it is so easy to to say, I love you, Jesus. But then in just the activities and the distractions of life, that my life actually doesn't showcase that reality. That it's like I worship at a thousand altars. And it's not that even all that stuff is bad and evil and wicked. It's just, it's just not you. Lord, what would it look like to have an exclusive relationship with the God of the universe? Lord, what, what would it look like to, to turn our gaze upon you and that you, oh Lord, our God, would be preeminent first place in our lives? And it's not that we can't watch a movie. It's not that we can't watch a sports game. It's not that, but Lord, those cannot be the priority. Relationships and emotions and work and Money, nothing can have first place but you. Lord, would you so kindly, through your spirit, put your finger on anything in our lives that has taken a position that only you deserve? 
Lord, would you somehow press our hearts and our minds in such a way that, that we wouldn't just hear, we would listen, we would shema, and we would make you the living God, our God alone, because there is no other. Lord, don't let us get distracted. Don't let us just fret our time away with a myriad of things. Lord, let us have an obsessive, devoted, exclusive, intimate relationship with you. Let us truly love you with all that we have and all that we are. For you alone are our God. And Lord, we want to just worship you this morning. We don't want to just sing songs about you. We don't want to just go through the lip service. But somehow, because you are our God, would you so fill us with just your life and your spirit. And may we, may we not sing, may we worship. For you and you alone are worthy. We love you, Jesus. We just give you all the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.